so the image is the image is this is we come into this village and obviously like the kids are beautiful and it's overwhelming and it's emotional but we connect this village with this pastor that is desiring to plant a church there and then we leave and then he's still there you see what i'm saying and all of my international experience was is the americans come in and they're the answer but then they go home so then what happens well in this situation the pastor's here he's planting a church doors are opened and you have a chance to go october 12th through the 17th it's a wednesday through a monday giving those of you who have to work a few better options to be able to take a couple less vacation days. Uh, the trip cost is about 1100 which isn't much at all. Every single person that went on this trip raised every dollar. They did phenomenal. God opens the doors. If you're interested in going, all right, there are applications out here in the foyer by all the pictures. What you do is you just fill that out. Give it to Lisa, and I, or Lisa or I before June 1st, and you as well can hop on this trip. So we're really excited, guys. I hope, hope you're encouraged by not just the missional work that's happening here in St. Charles, but the ways that God is expanding our view of the gospel. Amen? All right. We're super excited, and I'm excited that you're here. So I hope you guys are ready to do some work tonight. Now, what, what I learned in Ecuador was this. There are two things that unify believers. No matter where they live, no matter where they come from, no matter what their concept is. The first is the Holy Spirit. When we got back, I mentioned that to you, that when you put trust and faith in Jesus believing that his life, death, and resurrection has significance, so much so that causes you to say, Jesus, you're Lord and Savior of my life. The promise of the scripture is that you receive in that moment the Holy Spirit. That through faith, and then that faith evidenced by works, is that the Holy Spirit is gifted you from God. And the crazy weird thing, and you all know this that are believers, when you get around other believers that have, the scripture says, the same spirit, there's like something really weird that happens. Like you can't even really describe it. Though you're completely different in every way, shape, and form, you have the same spirit. And that connection is crazy. And so that connects us across miles. But the other thing that unifies us is God's word. When I uh, preached in Ecuador, when I preached in Israel when I was there, uh, when I spoke uh, in Germany, when I uh, spoke in Rio de Janeiro, and I say open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, Though it's not in Spanish, and it's not in Portuguese, and it, you know, all these other... Like, there's an Ephesians 2 in their Bible, too. You see what I'm saying? Like, like the Bible unifies us. And it can divide us. It unifies us, but it can divide us. Especially over close-handed issues. In other words, here at Matthias, we have these doctrines, these beliefs that we think are completely central to our belief of the Scripture, to the inerrancy of the Bible, to the power of God. These we don't argue about. These we say are central, are critical. And if anyone disagrees with these, then the thing that should have unified us, we're very clear about actually we're not unified. For instance, if someone says that Jesus was, uh, maybe he sinned once or twice. We're like, no, 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 the sinless nature of Jesus is in our closed hand. You see what I'm saying? Like, if you put sin on Christ, then he's not the perfect Passover land on the cross dying. And so for us, that's in our closed hand. And so it disunifies us. It separates us. On the other token, there's these open-handed issues. That we say, you know what, the scripture, though it speaks of it, it's not crystal clear. It never comes to an exact determination. And so on those things... Like, let's conversate, let's talk. In fact, there are several open-headed issues in the Scripture 
that the elders might even disagree on certain components of. But I think we can all agree on this. Is that even in this room, just like culture, there are varied perspectives on the scripture, right? Like some of you, some of you, you, you think it's literally the most intimidating book ever written. Like No pictures, unless you have a kid's Bible or something, right? No pictures. It's really long. The pages, you know, tear easily. So if you ever get angry, it's like you've got to tape up your sword, you know, all these kind of things. So to some people, it's really intimidating. Like the girth of it alone is like this, like how do I, you know, you can't read this in a year, right? And, and then for the others of you, it's like the greatest love letter ever written. It's not just that it's not intimidating. It's that really it connects to the deepest sense of you. Uh, to some of you, the scripture is like kind of true because you have to agree that there's certain historical things about the Bible that you just can't argue with. Like there's certain historical facts that are presented both in this text and other literature that affirm it. So to some, it's like kind of partly true, maybe pieces of it. And to others of you, it's completely inerrant. Its power sinks so deep. What's amazing, listen, is when the Bible not just breathes this truth to us, but speaks of itself. Now, these passages where the word is specifically talked about as the word are, are, are passages and verses that the church is just like latched onto, right? These have become some of the best Christian bumper stickers. These are all over Christian t-shirts. It's these kind of like, when the word talks about the word, it just, it's like triple power, you know what I'm saying? But, but listen, it's when you put them in their proper context that everything begins to shift. And tonight, probably one of the most quoted Bible verses of my entire ministry but the difference is we're not just quoting it as a, as a scripture. We're putting it in its whole context, right? So open your Bibles, my friends, to Hebrews chapter 4. Now, if you've been joining us, if you've been with us, what you know is we study the scripture verse by verse, and we're particularly right now in the book of Hebrews. What we know about Hebrews is, well, not a whole lot. We don't know the author. We don't know the exact date that it was written, and we know the audience was Jewish Christians, and we know that his primary topic of conversation has been centered on Jesus is more superior, is greater, is better than anything else. And last week, you remember what we talked about, was that for those people that take God's word serious, for those people that see God's word as truth, then there is the promise of an eternal rest forever worshiping God with him in heaven. But for those people who don't take God's word serious, who lack trust, and the scripture said disobey, for those people, no rest. And it's in this section that this tasty little verse comes up here in chapter 4. Let's begin in verse 11, the last verse from last week. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest that we just talked about, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 12, here we go. For the word of God is living and active, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Some of you were sleeping, you saw the word naked, now you're, now you're woken up, let's do this, right? Here we go, okay? This is, this is the classic verse. I've said it so much in my ministry, for the word of God is living and active. I can just quote it like that. But 
let's put it in its context. First, in verse 12, what, how does it open? For the word of God. Well, what is the word of God to the writer? We can say this for sure, that the Old Testament for this writer has had some, um, has had some interest, okay? Whether he has in his collection the entire or at least pieces of the Old Testament, we can't say for sure, but we know that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, have played some relevance to the writer because he's quoted them. He's also quoted Psalms, so we know that he understands Psalms. So the Word of God is at least the Old Testament. But if he's spoken so far so much about Jesus, then maybe not in writing form, but at least in, in, in narration form, at least in hearing form, when he says the Word of God, it has to mean both the Old Testament and also the message of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? And so when he says the word, it's not like when we say the word, which was our first problem before. It like, if we just understand it to be like the scripture as we know it, that's not in its original context. The original context is pieces of the Old Testament and the message of Jesus. Yes, the entire God's word as we have it, but it's different in its context, right? Now, before we look at the five things he says in verse 12, I want to uh, ask one thing. Um, can you remember the biggest moment of confrontation in your life? Any, can you remember that? Like when you were yelling at someone or someone was yelling at you or there was just this massive awkward moment because someone called you to the table or you called someone to the table. You remember that moment? Deepest moment of confrontation. Uh, does anyone here, not, don't raise your hand because it'll turn into a brawl. Does anyone in here just love confrontation? Like you just feel, you're like, yeah, I like that, right? It's those of us who don't like confrontation that don't like those people. You know what I'm saying? Because anytime you talk to them, they're just like confronting you with something. Confrontation, like I think if we were to just be honest, like most of us hate it. Like we'll do anything to shy away from comfort, won't we? It's like if someone's angry at us, like we lose sleep about it. And if someone's giving us the cold shoulder, like we'd rather just take the cold shoulder than to even have to confront the issue. I, I love what, how movies portray confrontation. Have you ever noticed this? Often in Hollywood, arguments, as people begin like talking like this, isn't it funny how eventually the argument gets face to face? Have you ever seen that? Have you experienced that in your own confrontation? Any marriages here? That, where the discussions start out like, like apart, and then because you're so intimately connected, they get a little bit closer, right? It's as if you need to hear each other better, right? Now, now listen, the writer's overall contention is this, is the word is confrontational, the word of God. And we always have a negative connotation to that, but the literal meaning of confrontation is just face-to-face, what the writer's overall contention is that the word causes this face-to-face confrontation where the reader must respond in some way because it's God's word and it has authority. Do you see what I'm saying? You've experienced this, for those of you especially, that have dug into the depths of the scripture. It is so confrontational and not in the negative sense but in the strong sense, in the authoritative sense. And so because of that here at Matthias, what we're trying to do is set up three different and push three different opportunities for the Bible to confront us. The first is corporately like this, right? Someone teaches and preaches, and the Bible, because of its truth and authority and power and impact, it confronts all of us corporately, right? This is good, but the level of accountability is low. You can walk in here and walk out, be confronted with the word, and it's and it's out the door. The second level for us is communal. 
small groups on Sundays where the word of God is taught and wrestled with as a group and confronts. And it's in those moments especially when you get to hear people sharing the depths of how God has confronted them with the word. How real it's become. How authentic it senses. And for those of you that are involved in a lot of families, you know how powerful those moments are when vulnerability comes up. But probably the most important of the three, corporate, communal, is the last, individual. You alone. Reading the sword, reading the Bible, and it confronts you there with no one looking. You and God. Listen, it's in those intimate moments, isn't it? When the truth of his character just seems so incredibly real and deep and true. But most of you are relying on the corporate, aren't you? You're relying on this. This is the opportunity for you to get confronted with the word. And I want to encourage you with this. If this is all you got, if this is the only moments that you have to hear the word of God, I want to challenge you. It's in the moments individually confronted with God's word that you're going to see the truth of his character arise. Are you with me? Now, the five things that he says about the scripture. The first is what? Look in your Bible. The first is what? What is it? Living, right? Can you read, right? We good? Talking about the Bible, there's words there. It's living, right? Now, this is really, really interesting. That somehow, these words have life to them. There's been hundreds of speeches in so many different eras and generations and times to so many different kinds of people. And what's unbelievable to think is that all of those words throughout the ages, most of them die with the prophets of the day. Like the words are done. Once the era, the generation, or the people group has died off, the words too that really rallied that kind of people or that particular push or movement die with its leaders or with its people. Now, certainly certain literature has, like, has, has kept going. We have books and ancient his, historical books that, that speak of these huge events. But the question is, do they have life? But what the Bible says here about the word the words of God, that somehow strangely, it's like a living organism. That somehow this message that started literally thousands of years ago with the first books of the Bible, and then the message of Jesus 2,000 years ago, somehow these words haven't died off with a generation or a people. Somehow they've maintained themselves. Well, how does that happen? It's not because enough people are just like, we just need to keep pushing this. No, it's because these words have life. Are you with me? That somehow these words written down on your pages, some black and some red, compiled for us in these nice packets and put on apps on your phone, that somehow these words different from the words that you read in any other book, that these words have life to them. Now, if it's just living for me, that's not even enough. You see? If, if he just stops here, the word of God is living. Okay, like, what does that even mean? Like, that sounds weird, you know? Like, like, we're, like, we're holding some kind of living thing in our hands here? Like, this is strange. But he doesn't end there. What's the next thing that he says? The Word of God is living and what? And active. Um, I don't know how much you guys know about bears. Um, but uh, not the team, which is my favorite, but rather the, the actual animal. Any other bears fans here? We good? Dude, praise God. Right, all right. Well, bears... Bears in the winter, what happens? What do they do? 
except the Chicago Bears, the other kind of bears in the winter, they, they hibernate, right? They go to a cave and they sleep. Sounds really appealing for many of you, right? Some of you actually may do that in the wintertime, right? But, but bears, like, they're breathing and their heart is beating, but they're completely inactive. So what the scripture says is the word is not just alive, which Peter calls the word abiding and living word. Jesus said, my words are living and true. And then listen to this, Isaiah 55, the scripture says, when the, when the words come from my mouth, they will not return what? Void. They're not empty. Like there's something about these words that are active, that are reaching in somewhere and doing something and transforming. And so the powerful picture for us is not just the fact that the word is some kind of living thing, but also that it's doing work. That the words are transforming, that they're morphing us. Now, each of these words build on top of each other. Let's look at the next two things, which will excite many of you guys. This word is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. So, like, here we go. This image, somehow strangely almost, of the Bible as one of the most, like a double-edged sword, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's other passages in the Scripture that allude to this, and even the Bible calls itself a sword, the sword of the Spirit, is the image is it cuts to the deepest core of you. That somehow it reaches, it reaches down. It doesn't stop. A double-edged sword is, is the sharpest, obviously, because it's completely sharpened on both edges. And so as it starts to cut through, it won't stop when it hits certain um, bones or structure of the, of the body. That's the image here. And so it gets all the way down to the depth of you. So much in our culture, in challenge and in confrontation, stops on the surface. But what the Bible says about the Bible is that it gets to the core. So my question is, is if the word is confronting, and if it gets to my core, if it gets to the innermost piece of me, then what happens there, right? Like once it, once it gets in there... Like once it gets to the depths of my heart and soul, and in this case, soul and spirit, then what happens there? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, the word says, let the word of Christ, what? Dwell in you richly. That once the word gets there, to the core, confronts you to the core, what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to stay there. Uh, in another place in Scripture, it talks about the Word being written on our hearts. Some of you are so obsessed with being convicted by the Word. Really, that's what the Word is for you. You enjoy, like, you enjoy the punching bag and then walking out the door and not transforming. You enjoy strangely seeing how disconnected you are from God. And that feels some obsession in you. But it literally just, it slices to the core and then it's gone. What the Bible says is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I was really deeply impacted by this point this week. Here's why. Stephen, one of the first Christian martyrs, as the high priest asks him to give his account, do you guys, you guys know what happens? Listen, he doesn't reach for his scroll. 
he's sitting there getting ready to be martyred for his faith. And he's not like, where's my scroll? Like, I, I, need, to, I need to say some scripture right now. Who's seen my scroll, right? Like, give me... He doesn't. Like, the word has not just cut through him, but it's dwelling in him. So much so that when the high priest says, give an account, you know what he does? He just speaks. Because the word has gotten so deep within him, so written on his heart, that in the moment of truth for him, that in the moment when all would be laid bare, he just goes for it. And many of you know before he's stoned, he repeats the words of Jesus, whether he had heard them or just because of the same spirit. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As the stones are coming, he knows the word. Ask the missionary we were connected with in Laos. Two best friends shot in the head in front of him back in the Vietnam War. He was put on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Eventually a, a prisoner in the Hanoi Hilton. Listen, if the word isn't dwelling in Lloyd in that prison, what does he have? What does he, They're not going to put him in prison for being a Christian and then he asks for a Bible and they say, sure, like here, have the scripture, right? No, what he's claiming in that moment, the things that he's repeating in his mind better not be cultural relativisms. They better be the scripture because that's, that's his only promise, his only hope. You see what I'm saying? But if the word isn't dwelling, if it's just cutting, if you don't know it, then when you are lying on that bed, when the doctor says, you've got three months to live, I'm just diagnosing you with cancer, or your little kid passes away in tragedy, or you have an amazing amount of joy because of the new job, what are you reaching for? What are going to be the things that are stirring in your heart? The truth of the scripture because it's living and it's active and it's cutting? Or just some cliches that you've latched onto that make you feel better about yourself. Let me encourage you, church. The picture of the word cutting and the picture of the word dwelling shows us that it's living and active. We reveal to this culture how living and active it is when our Bible is on our stand and the scripture is coming out of our mouth. And I know many of you would say, well, I'm a new Christian, and I don't know the scripture. Great. It's an amazing opportunity to start learning it, right? That's why we have discipling relationships here and opportunities for you to learn the word. Even if it's something so simple as something like John 3.16 that's seen in everything, start somewhere. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. And look what it does when it gets there. When it gets to the core of you. What does the Bible do? It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Once it gets in there, the core of who you are, what it does is because it's living, because it's active, because it's dwelling, it calls out every piece of you. It brings to the table everything you are. It discerns who you are as a person. Now he sets this up to affirm this teaching in verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if the word cuts to our core, 
and it confronts us with the greatest truth there is. The point of all of it is that God sees every piece of you. And so as the word slices you open, revealing the character of God, your distance from Him, your need of Him, it helps you daily realize that you cannot hide. Look, it's easy to think that you're one in six billion. I don't even know how many, how many people are living in the world right now. Six billion, roughly, right? 6.1, I don't know. It's easy because you're sitting in your seat and you're so personalized and often selfish. It's easy to think you're one in six million, that there's no way that a God can ever know you, that there's no way that God can ever personally understand you. Listen, the teaching of the scripture is you cannot run, you cannot hide. And though you think you can ignore the scripture, there will come a day, this verse says, where it will not ignore you. Its power will be seen, its reality will be known. And so let's just stop before we do anything else right now. Nothing else. And even this scripture is exposing our hearts and cutting at our core. What are you hiding tonight? Like what's in there that no, that no one else knows? That no one else sees? You can deceive others and often deceive yourself, but you cannot deceive God. You can't. You can't. What are you hiding? What thoughts are going through that dome that you've put to the side? What's in there that in this moment, if it were all laid on the table, it would be a truly condemning moment for you? But that's why the word is so powerful. When all of these things were laid bare, when Christ knew of our sin, while we were yet sinners, he died. That's our hope. Are you with me? But the word is living. It's active. It cuts us to the core. It discerns the intentions of our heart, which is critical because any of us can put on a mask. And it does that because on one day, everything will be laid bare. And the Greek word here of exposed literally means the most vulnerable position for a sacrifice. That's what it means. It means that one day, literally all of us will just be laid bare before God. And in that moment, hopefully through faith in Him, it's the blood of Jesus that will say, this person is found innocent. Now, listen. It's one thing for us to say all this. See the power of the word, understand the word, know that there's Christians all over the world right now that don't have scriptures, but that it's written so deeply on their heart that they're just communicating. It's one thing to say that, and that's another thing to do a case study. Right? You didn't come to church tonight. I think we're going to do a case study. Wrong. Here we go. Put up 1 Thessalonians for me. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. In a few brief words, for anyone else, does it just cut? For anyone else, does it reveal your desperate need of him? 
the lust of your heart, the lust of your eyes. Men, your struggle with pornography. Females, your struggle with constant issues of worth, vulnerability. For anyone else, listen, does the word just seem to cut? Does it seem for a second that this is more than just self-help? And trying to reveal to us how the power of God can transform us. Not like the Gentiles. Control your body in holiness. Now listen, this is often what we think of when we think of the Bible cutting, don't we? Like here comes some really confrontational scripture. Calling us to the table. Certainly it cuts because it it meshes right to the, the core of who we are. But what about this? Psalm. Put up the psalm passage for me. Still the word, still the scripture, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of what? It's majesty. Anybody else, does that not cut to? I think we're so tuned and so thinking that the confrontation of the scripture is just when the scripture is showing us our weakness. But the scripture is confrontational and beautiful when it's showing us the awe of God. The voice of God is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. It cuts. It gets to our core. It reveals to us the fullness of God's character. And so in us, in these moments, it opens our heart with the opportunity to see God as who he is. Stand with me. Stephen cherished the words of the scripture. He saw them for what they were. He didn't look at them as words for someone else. He understood them as powerful truth for him. And I feel like even for us believers, we view the scripture for somebody else. Someone else needs to hear that. Someone else needs to be convicted by that. Someone else needs to be changed because of that. But what happens when all of us say, no, that word's for me. All of it, God's word's for me. It's true. It's acting. It will never return void. It comes in power. And when it comes, it cuts. And when it cuts, it better Stay. Let's let the word tonight, not just confrontation and conviction, but the power of the majesty of God, cut us and call us to our knees in a vulnerable position where all is laid bare. God, I thank you for your reality, for your passion the truth of who you are and I pray God that because of who you are because of your consistency because of your awing power that your word will not return void tonight but will stir our hearts in affection for you we love you and we want to be cut to our core and exposed, revealing your grace.